Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this month's Cyber Threat Briefing. I'm joined by the ever-present Hugh Rayner. My name is Nick Hayes, and uh, we're going to take you through four kind of topics that we've picked up throughout the last month or so that have, that have kind of flashed up and feel worthy of a conversation within the cyber uh, security space. Before we get started, though, um, Hugh, how's things? Are you doing all right? Yeah, absolutely. Glad to be joined by you. Excellent. Good. Right. So let's, uh, as long as you're doing good, let's kick on here and let's get on with it. So this month's discussion points, we've got a password stealing and impersonation risks. These have been discovered recently in the Okta provider. They've also been disputed by Okta. So we'll just mention that up front there uh, ahead of time. We'll just get into a little bit about them and what that means. We've got managing malware on Unix-based operating systems. So there's a, a new strain, strain of malware around that is targeting non-Windows-based operating systems now. So a little bit of advice around what to look for and what to do. We're going to talk a little bit more about time to weaponization as well. So now that these days vulnerabilities are, are um, exploited faster than ever before, we've got some stats around that as well. And we can share some insights around that. And then the final point is, is how to achieve your goals with fewer resources as, as cybersecurity costs increase. So... As we well know, we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis, well on the way to one anyway. And everything seems pressured at the minute. So it felt like the right time to talk about, you know, the challenges that we're seeing in the marketplace, the challenges that if we're seeing it, everybody else will be seeing it, and how you can achieve more with less ultimately. So without further ado, shall we get into it, Hugh? Yeah, absolutely. Good. Okay. So on the first point then, so password stealing and impersonation risk disputed by an identity provider Okta. Okay, so that's number one on the list here. And just a bit of a brief background to everyone before we dive into it. There has been some research done and released this week by a company called Authomize, who have kind of looked at Okta in depth. So they're kind of, I guess, go-to-market strategies around identity providers and shoring up that, you know, doing, looking at security of identity providers, et cetera. They've looked at Okta in particular, and they, they believe they've uncovered some high-impact inherent security risk in the way that the Okta is put together and operates. So the issues that they found and, and I've, I've talked about in their blog post includes clear text password extraction via CIM, uh, which is a protocol for, I guess, sharing passwords between uh, identity providers. Number two is sharing of passwords and sensitive data over unencrypted channels. The hub and spoke configuration, which allows sub-admins to compromise accounts in the hub or other spokes downstream. And mutable identity, identity log spoofing is the fourth one. So are you, I, I don't know how you want to approach these. Do you want to approach them one by one or do you want to yeah, just talk seems, about seems them in reason. general overall? Yeah, so the first one is probably the one that strikes me as most concerning. Again, with all of these items, Okta themselves are saying they're, they're not security issues. They are intended quirks of intended functionality. And there is, for every one of these issues, configuration setting or remediation action that you can take. But the way that these guys have been able to prove stealing plain text credentials from Okta is, as you say, they're setting up a skim server, which, yeah, exactly as you said, used for um, transferring credentials and identities, typically between SaaS software as a service applications. And then in the Okta management console, so you would need a, a set of admin credentials to do this, but then you can redirect where Okta looks to sync those credentials with. And by setting it as your skim server, which the attacker can set up over HTTP as well, not, not HTTPS, you can actually force that redirection, that resynchronization with that skim server. And that will just provide you with the entire list of all credentials and identities managed within that organization. So Okta say that's not an issue, but you know it seems quite concerning that it, it seems so easy to obtain all of that plain text credential matter. What do you think? 
yeah, I mean, it goes without saying that they, they have disputed the, the kind of claims, but it looks like they're having a, a good dialogue with Orthomise anyway in terms of kind of way forward and, and working these things out. So I'm not here to comment on whether it is a, an issue or not an issue or vulnerability, not an issue, a vulnerability, but it's obviously worthy of raising this to people listening in. My view is that as a default configuration, it doesn't seem a great thing to have in place. I'm aware that there are things that you can do to mitigate it. So the settings that you can put in place to, to mitigate the issues, particularly of the, of the top two. But it also seems to me that there are elements to this attack chain that requires some elements of social engineering as well. So it's not just a, a case of fire at an octa provider or a, an octa environment and you'll get some success. It feels like you do also need some interaction with someone on the inside who has the right level of permissions as well. Is that, is that correct? Am I, am I correct? Yeah, exactly. So, so none of these things are what I, I necessarily class as vulnerabilities because there's no exploit for these, right? Most of them, well, in fact, all of them, you're requiring some access to the Octa sort of console to be able to work with. I think it probably comes down to the fact that when people are looking to implement these you know, identity provider solutions, what Octa really don't want is for you to implement that system and for it to not work and to cause issues in your environment. So the default options are sort of, by virtue of that, quite permissive and will allow things to occur just so that the system works. And then, yeah, you really do then have to go in and make sure that you harden that yourself and you know modify that configuration to suit your environment. Otherwise, you end up with situations like this. Excellent, yeah. And it, it does mention as well, it's, it's not necessarily a high-level admin that you need. It's, it's an app admin, right? So it's the, yeah. the lowest level built-in account that can assign app access to an app, uh, ultimately. Yeah, indeed. Good. Um, so you, uh, what's the recommendations here? What do we, you know, if people use an option now, what, what are the next steps that they should do? Yeah, so basically just go through around the blog post, you can see basically the areas that are affected. So things like username, uh, username duplication is one of the settings, and that's the one that affects the non-repudiation case in the logs and spoofing as another user. So go out and disable that. Look through your configuration settings carefully and actually decide, do I need this level of permission to suit my organizational requirement? And if you can tighten up those settings, yeah, absolutely, you should do so. Don't just assume that out of the box, everything's going to work perfectly for you. Thank you. Anything else you want to add on to that particular attack chain path against Okta? Otherwise, no, I, I have a question about identity providers. Yeah, okay, good. So I guess the question I would have as well that, that may well be a, a good discussion point is around identity providers in general. So it feel, feels like to me that these are massively critical parts of an infrastructure these days and the way that a company would operate their IT infrastructure particularly. What can I do? Well, you know, it's clearly quite important. So how do I make sure that I've, you know, for whatever identity provider, whether it's Okta or something else, how do I make sure I've provisioned that in the right way? It's configured in a secure manner. What are the options for me there? Yeah, well, I suppose, I guess the first question to cover there is, you know, should I be using an identity provider? And yeah, we do occasionally get things like this come up in these massive global identity providers. But I guarantee that if, you know, you tried to implement that yourself in-house, you'd probably come across a far greater number of issues a lot sooner. So this is by no way saying that identity providers are a bad idea, and they do make a lot of that really difficult and critical work around managing these identities a lot easier for you. But yeah, absolutely, compare the different offerings available and take the time to assess business requirements, testing them as well, get people in to test that configuration. You know, work with your vendor on looking for guidance on 
how best to tailor that to suit your environment. Brilliant. Thank you. So I'll post the optimized blog in the chat as well. Um, it's good. You know, it's, it's, it's a pretty good, well-written blog in my view. Has quite a lot of steps to replicate in there, as well as mitigation advice, etc. As well. Um, so I'll post that in there. If you if you're using Octo, it would be wise to have a read through it. Again, proviso, and so this is kind of a contested, I guess, is one way of putting it at the minute. Cool. We'll move on in that case. Um, so Hugh, next one on the list was managing malware on Unix-based operating systems. So one of the key news items from uh, from a couple of weeks ago now was around a new malware strain, new ransomware strain actually called Red Alert, which was not just a ta- targeting Windows hosts as ransomware typically would, but appeared to be targeting ESXi hosts as well. Have you got any thoughts on how you might manage and mitigate malware attacking non-Windows hosts? It's typically a less known area of infrastructure, less kind of monitored and less logged area of an infrastructure. So have you got any yeah, advice there? Indeed. When, you know, most of the time we think about malware, we're thinking about Windows-based um, you know, malware strains and things like that. But absolutely, it's definitely important that we consider Linux as well. I mean, there are actually quite a few um, different solutions you can look at. I think most distributions of Linux contain ClamAV by default which is it is a really good bit of tooling. It's open source. Everyone can contribute signatures to that. It does work well, but it's not the easiest to use. Again, like we were just talking about, out of the box, maybe not the most user-friendly option. So there are then you know the commercial offerings from the common uh, vendors that we see on Windows as well, like Sophos and, and the rest that are, yeah, they're going to be more easy to use and are going to probably integrate better with your tooling on the Windows estate as well. But ClamAV is free and it does do a really good job of finding things. So, yeah, I guess beyond that, beyond just looking at the anti-malware, is also making sure that our Linux hosts are, if we're using you know, a Seam or a SOC, that we're ingesting data from those hosts as well and they're taking just the same precautions because... I mean, from experience, right, when you're first learning, you know, pen testing or hacking or whatever you want to call it, it's primarily Linux hosts you're working with. So most of the training labs and things like that are Linux based. So absolutely, attackers will be really familiar with Linux, well-versed, hundreds of exploits available. And a lot of the tool is, is natively sort of Linux based as well. So absolutely, if you do have Linux hosts in your network, they are going to be a target because they're a great foothold for an attacker to get. Yeah, particularly SXI ones as well, which are hosting generally other servers as well. So you yeah, get that, that kind of hypervisor layer. Then you're into a good, well, I say in a good spot. If you're an attacker, you're into a good spot. If you're defending it, not a great spot. Are there any other controls you could put in place? How about things like network segregation, that kind of thing? Could you Should you put your admin interfaces onto a separate network, for instance? Yeah, I mean, that's an obvious one, right? We're talking a lot quite regularly about using VLANs and management networks and things like that to try and lock things down. But certainly, you know, I've not really seen too much of a shift in my testing away from flat networks, really. I think they're, you know, they're easy to manage. They work. People just sort of gravitate towards that from an ease of use perspective. But absolutely, if you do have particularly high value assets, segment that network to make sure that they've got that, those extra controls and working towards that defense in depth model. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there are, there are good resources as well. There's, there's a, the 10 steps uh, from NCSC, which covers some ransomware piece in there. And I think there's a, a ransomware framework from NIST as well, which is based off the CSF. Again, really good resources if you are looking to, to assess yourself against controls, generally speaking, that are related to ransomware. Good. Absolutely. 
Excellent. We'll move on. Very related, actually, the third point to what we just talked about, which is time to weaponization. So the indicators are that vulnerabilities these days are being exploited faster than ever before. And I guess my question to you, Hugh, is what's the implication of that? So what are we dealing with here? Yeah, so I guess it really makes things quite difficult for us because we're always talking about effective patch management programs and maintaining good cyber hygiene. But as we're seeing this time to weaponization, you know, the time between a vulnerability being disclosed and that being weaponized and automated and hooked into ransomware come down, it really makes that more difficult because you can't just say, right, great, we'll, we'll get all of our patching done within 14 days. Because we've seen, so I think in 2020, I did some digging on this. In 2020, it seemed like on average, we were seeing that gap between um, disclosure and weaponization at about 15 days. But now we're seeing it come down to about five days. So that's, you know, a third of the time, which is, you know, really is quite scary. And, you know, most organizations are not feasibly going to be able to get every single patch deployed across every host in an environment within those five days. So I think calling on things like automation, automated vulnerability scanning, you know, that can run in the background that's then picked up and verified by an individual is really going to be ever more important getting as much done yeah, in an automated fashion that can run on that constant rolling basis to make sure that as soon as an issue drops, you get that notification of it, whether that's in your network or you know, calling on open source intelligence and threat intelligence from the wider world as well. Brilliant. Yeah, thank you. And that rolls into our next question. So obviously, 15 days down into five means that everything's a little bit more pressured than it has been previously. And it goes across the board, right? So we're going to talk about the fourth point here, which is how to achieve your goals with fewer resources as cybersecurity costs increase. Now, this can come from the people angle, right? So people generally, the market is a little bit strong right now. But it could come from a tooling perspective. There's inflation in place, so tooling pricing is going to go up, right? generally, I would imagine, across the market. And then coupled with that, you've got this ever-increasing downward pressure of we need to do more, we need to do much more quicker, uh, ultimately. So I think we'll have a, a brief discussion here around how you can achieve more with relevant resources. Now, I can cover off the, I guess, some of the people angle stuff, but Hugh, in the first instance, do you have any kind of thoughts on how customers and organizations out there can achieve more with less ultimately? Yeah, I think, you know, historically there's been a, a really strong desire to maintain all the all those key skills in-house and, and have everyone in your cybersecurity team that can, you know, fill all of these roles and functions and manage that internally. But obviously that is expensive and for the hopefully 362 days of the year that you don't have an ongoing cyber incident, that cost of those resources still exists, right? So I think we're going to see a trend towards leveraging of managed services, whether that's in detection or response or anywhere really, just so that, you know, we're not having to manage and maintain those resources. We're not having to constantly stay on top of, you know, maintaining a team of people that are skilled threat analysts and things like that. Just outsourcing that, making use of the sort of combined efforts of organizations that are able to service multiple clients. I mean, we don't all run diesel generators in our house to provide electricity for us, right? We just pay money for the infrastructure and say, hey, National Grid, you handle that energy distribution and we'll just use that resource. So it's a model that works in other areas, right? So I think we're definitely going to see a trend towards reliance on managed services, not to say that that isn't without its own risk. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And I think you touched on something there, and the example being electricity, right? So 
generally usage based as well. I think there's probably quite a lot of managed service providers out there that are not operating on a usage based system right now. It'll be a case of we think you need X amount of resource for this long period of time. It'll cost you therefore that times by that. But there's probably an alternative method, an alternative mechanism for commercialization of this. You can maybe look at a usage based managed service model, for example, and so on and so forth. So there's probably some intelligent pricing that can go off from a vendor perspective here to help with matters as well, I think. I had a few thoughts on this particular point as well, mostly from a people perspective. So I do quite a lot of hiring efforts in the marketplace, um, hiring for consultants, um, both penetration testers and risk consultants. Yeah, no getting away from it. The market is pretty hot right now, which does kind of make the hiring scene a little bit more challenging, probably in other windows of time. But there's certainly things that you can do. I think things like having a, a good, strong culture would be quite an important thing that someone can come into. I think there's elements... You know, you look at consultants and technical people, they always kind of want to learn something new. So learn off someone, particularly, you know, if they're higher than them, given the opportunity for training, that kind of thing. I think those kind of elements are really strong and can be quite a nice pull. But I think anything you can do in terms of a progressive approach to things like employee benefits and employee experience and things like flexible working, work from home, that kind of stuff, I think, again, will be very powerful key pulls um, for various people. But ultimately, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's tough going out there. And if we're finding it tough and we've got a, a quite a large team, I assume that some end user roles who might have only two or three people in the team because of, you know funds, whatever, is restricting that, that's going to be challenging. So you, if you have a team of three consultants or three internal pen testers and you know the senior guy leaves because he's had a lucrative offer from somewhere else, your two junior guys are probably floundering a little bit and struggling in there. So I think from a, yeah, it's, it's tough out there right now, but it's it's even more probably more problematic and difficult from an end user perspective as well. So I think the, the point you made there, you around a managed service type offering potentially becoming more prevalent is, is quite key. I did, yeah, on, on the managed service side of things as well, you, you've got to be pretty comfortable with the managed service provider themselves. So you're going to have to trust them quite a lot. And I think it's, it's paramount that you do pick a, a you know a good one, more someone that you're comfortable with, can work with well, that can ultimately have feedback given and make the appropriate actions off the back of that feedback as well. So... Yeah, I think some really good insights there. I think the other point as well around fewer resources, and then this is kind of me talking about things that I've seen in the past and we see currently now, is that a lot of people spend money on tooling and in some cases a lot of tooling, um, but potentially don't tune that tooling in, in the right way. So they might just stick a, an EDR solution in, in its default form and plug it in there. Great, okay, I've bought this thing, so that must mean I'm fully protected and it's going to be detected. It's not always the case. And I think there's probably an argument here for spending time to properly tune tooling that you have previously bought into your environment, into your use cases, you know, make sure it's 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 configured correctly with your kind of alert thresholds and things like that. So that you can be comfortable that it's doing the job you, that it says it's going to do, that when you do spend people time, which is very valuable, that that's spent in the right place, in the right way, and in an impactful manner as well. Did you have any thoughts on tooling tuning and so on and so forth yeah i just echoing the importance of just as if you you know you got a new individual into the organization you'd spend the time to train them up and make sure that they were operating in the the way you'd expect of them absolutely that's the same for edr xdr all of that it's only going to do what it's set up to do so there's huge importance in that as well and as you mentioned on you touched on sort of the employee satisfaction um sort of pull I think that's really important as well. And again, automation is absolutely going to help with that because I think we're seeing the bits that we're able to automate most and that lend themselves most easily towards automation are probably also the parts of people's jobs 
which they get the least satisfaction out of doing as well. So by you know providing the automation, you're going to free up a lot of time, specifically for then the resources that you do have to be working on things which are both valuable to you and interesting to them as well. That's what on that. I think we might be just about out of time, Hugh. I think we've covered a fair bit there, but I will open the the chat up now. If anyone's got any questions, uh, feel free to post them in the in the chat box uh, at the bottom, and we'll have a look uh, at them as they come in. Um, otherwise, you, you're more than welcome to contact us outside of that if you if you have, do have any other questions. Otherwise, we do thank you for for joining us. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure as always, and uh, we'll see you in a month's time. We'll hang around for a couple of minutes and look for any questions coming in. Thanks, everyone.